we've all been there. The holidays are winding down and you need a way to use up all that leftover sponge cake and whipped cream from the mountain of desserts adorning the Christmas table. This dessert is a lovely combination of fruit, cake, cream, jelly, and a splash of alcohol. The flavor combinations are endless, so you're sure to find one to please even the pickiest of eaters. It's a dessert whose origins may have come from a little fun in the hay, to suffering fools, to making something of little consequence. We're exploring the history and origins of trifle. Welcome to another serving of Seasons Eatings, the podcast which explores the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. Seasons Eatings can be found wherever you download your favorite podcast. Seasons Eatings is also found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you love the show, then I humbly ask you to share this podcast with someone you think would love to hear more about the history of Christmas and the foods which shape the holiday we love so much. And if you want to give me suggestions for future episodes, just email me at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com. All the links can be found in the show notes at seasonseatingspodcast.com. It's a concept that most likely had its roots in my favorite way to cook. Someone had a bit of leftover cake and came up with a great way to repurpose it. Trifle is said to date back a few hundred years to England, and this jumble of textures has become a national favorite in that country, often served during the holidays and other special occasions. Though a simple dessert to make, trifle still looks gorgeous with its multiple layers and colors and textures. It's made in deep bowls so all the layers will be thick, well-defined layers, rather than thinly spread out ones. Ideally, the bowl should be flat-sided rather than sloping and should be glass or crystal to show off the layers. Generally, people haul out their fanciest cut glass or crystal bowls for them. Traditionally, it's some kind of cake, typically a sponge, moistened with some type of booze, typically a sweet sherry, and layered with custard and jam and perhaps fresh fruit, all topped with whipped cream. But for the people of Britain, there is one ingredient that trumps all others. Nostalgia. It's the dish that everyone's gran made better than anyone else's. And if gran made it with what the Brits called jelly, a fruity red gelatin that some people view as an essential trifle ingredient, then a jelly-less version won't do. But before we dive into the sweet, creamy history of this multi-layered dessert, we first have to find out where it all began. The origins go back a few hundred years, but the actual date has been lost to history. To find the origins of trifle, we must first have to go back to find the origins of its predecessor, syllabub. While it may sound like something you find in an English textbook, Syllabub is actually milk or cream that's curdled with an acid beverage, such as a wine or a cider, and is often sweetened and served as a drink or topping or thickened with gelatin and served as a dessert. In that part of the western division of England, which is commonly called Somersetshire, there lived a gentleman whose name was Sumworthy. 
It was the middle of May, and the morning was remarkably serene when Mr. Sumworthy walked forth on the terrace where the dawn opened. Mr. Sumworthy raised his arms and declared, I want syllabub. Where is that foundling I adopted? Where is that slatternly milkmaid? Where is my cook? Heeding the call for syllabub, the cook ran from the kitchen carrying sugar, nutmeg, and cinnamon. The foundling, Tom, a lad of ingenuous countenance, and also buxom milkmaid Molly appeared together, running from the direction of the barn. Both were flush of complexion, and both had unlaced outer garments. Bits of straw stuck to their clothing and tangled in their hair. Dear listener, it's obvious that Tom and Molly had been in the hayloft engaged in a ritual more ancient than making syllabub. Though I'm tempted to digress to the complex topic of morality in Old England, I should avoid any discussion of the salacious. I know your only concern is to discover syllabub, and our Mr. Sumworthy's demand must be met. Upon hearing Mr. Sumworthy's desire, nimble-footed Tom immediately fetched a bowl, placed it in front of Mr. Sumworthy, and filled it to the halfway mark with ale. The cook rushed in to mix sugar and spices. Molly, now perceiving the weakness of which he'd been guilty, hastened to the barn and led out one of Mr. Sumworthy's fine milk-giving guernseys. Molly brought the cow directly to the bowl of ale. She could not forbear giving the cow a hearty kiss, then reached to grasp one swollen udder. As with great raptures she experienced in the barn, she fell to squeezing the udder. A stream of warm, fresh milk shot directly into the bowl, causing Molly to cry out, Oh, the dear creature, the dear, sweet, pretty creature. When the bowl was full of frothy milk, Molly stood and took a cover from the cook. Bending, she placed a cover on the bowl which would sit for an hour before drinking. Mr. Sumworthy smiled broadly as Molly bent, his smile elicited by the perfection of the syllabub. The natural sweetness of Molly's countenance, and the revelation of that which lay under her unlaced bodice. Though this account of syllabub in the making may seem to resemble fiction, the details accurately record the earliest methods. In the hour or two that the syllabub was set aside, a curd formed over the ale. With a possible addition of layer of cream on top, the syllabub was ready to drink. The solids that formed the top of the syllabub were eaten with a spoon and wine at the bottom drunk. There was a second, more citified kind of syllabub, one that probably reflected class distinction as well as evolving techniques. Though Mr. Sumworthy used ale or cider, the citified version would have used an alcohol called sack, also referred to as ser, or to Shakespeare, sherry sayers. This intoxicant came from Jerez and developed in the famed sherry wine of Spain. Cream replaced milk, and with no cow at hand, the cream was spooned with vigor into the wine. Sometimes it was whipped to a froth with a birch whisk, a task surely performed only in upper-class houses that had a kitchen staff more industrious than that Mr. Sumworthy's country milkmaid. Like its country cousin, it was served in a glass, and in due time a special syllabub glass was designed. 
This glass had a spout located at the bottom of the glass, so the wine could be sipped without the clotted milk. At some point, the discovery was made that a syllabub stayed firmer when the proportion of wine to milk was reduced, and the two didn't separate. This syllabub was called an everlasting syllabub for its powers of endurance. Cookbook authors to the day laid claims to having a recipe for syllabub that would last the longest. This was an early way to market cookbooks, giving evidence that hype is another of our ancient rituals. The mind races through the numerous allusions made to fools, from the fool that accompanied King Lear on his howling journey across the moors, to the modern moor blundering plaintively asking, what kind of fool am I? But the name of this gossamer dessert comes from the French word foulet, meaning pressed or crushed and refers to the combination of crushed fruits and thick cream. It is a dish that is sublime in its simplicity. The British countryside is a paradise for berry lovers. It offers gooseberries, red currants, strawberries, raspberries. One can even sing Here We Go Round the Mulberry Tree while plucking the small blackberry-like fruit. Any of these fruits might have been used to make fools. This simple dish, so refreshing on a summer's day, might find its modern equivalent in popularity to the omnipresent yogurt with fruit on the bottom, though no artificially sweetened yogurt can compare to fresh crushed fruit and cream. The fool is also the beginning of ice cream, a dish that required refrigeration to arrive at the status it holds today. We'll find out how we get trifle from a fool after the break. I'd like to thank Audible for being a sponsor for Seasons Eating's podcast. When I'm not doing research for the podcast, I'd like to get out and go for a walk with my dog to recharge. We both get some exercise, and I use Audible to listen to my favorite book while I'm out there. With literally thousands of titles to choose from from your phone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, Audible has so many audiobooks for you to try, no matter what genre you love to read. Perhaps you want to try a Christmas cozy mystery, the history of food, or whatever tickles your fancy. There are so many titles to choose from. Again, to download your free Audible book today, go to audibletrial.com slash seasonseatings for your free audiobook, and thanks for supporting the Seasons Eatings podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it even easier. If you're like me, you have fond memories of Christmas's past, when you settled in with your family to watch cherished Christmas classics like Rudolph, Frosty, or maybe you remember trekking to the theater to see big holiday releases like A Christmas Story, Home Alone, and my personal favorite, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I hope you'll rediscover a piece of that innocence while shopping at retrofestive.ca. While you're here, why not pick up some gifts for your loved ones? We're always posting new items, so be sure to check back often. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. From leg lamps to moose mugs, puzzles and pop culture, Retro Festive is your one-stop online shop for all your holiday gifts. Visit retrofestive.ca and be like Uncle Eddie and get something for you.
something really nice. So what can we expect to evolve from a fool? Merely a trifle, of course. Though in its evolution, it became a substantially highly decorated dessert. Trifle is a layered dessert found in British and other cuisines, made from a thin layer of sponge fingers, commonly soaked in sherry or another fortified wine, custard, and a fruit element, fresh or jellied. The contents of a trifle are highly variable. Many varieties exist, some foregoing fruit entirely and instead use other ingredients such as chocolate and coffee or vanilla. The fruit and sponge layers may be suspended in fruit-flavored jelly, and these ingredients are usually arranged to produce three or four layers. Helen Saberi, in her article Whims and Fancies of a Trifle Lover, has unearthed an early trifle recipe that has no fruit and is merely cream flavored with sugar, ginger, and rose water. Saberi believes that this is actually a fool recipe, but offers it to us as an illustration of the overlapping nature of these desserts. Originally, the words fool and trifle were used interchangeably. Take a pint of thick cream and season it with sugar and ginger and rose water, so stir it as you would then have it and make it lukewarm in a dish on a chafing dish and coals and after, put it into a silver piece or bowl and serve it to the board. The Jane Austen Center in Bath provides some helpful background information about developments in food in Georgian times, especially concerning sponges, the base that is essential to a trifle. Beaten eggs had begun to replace yeast as the raising agent for cakes, and fatless sponge cakes were all the rage as evidenced in a letter from Jane Austen to her sister in 1808 where she wrote, you know how interesting the purchase of a sponge cake is to me. The earliest sponge cake recipe in English was recorded by Gervas Markham in 1615, but these sponge cakes were thin and crisp, more like a modern biscuit. Among the more popular in the 18th century were European styles of sponge cake known as biscuit and genoise both of which use cornstarch in place of some of the flour, giving a closer textured cake that tended to be dry and so was often moistened with syrup. Naples biscuits were made with the same batter but poured into individual molds and were actually pretty much what we'd call today ladies' fingers. Whilst a homemade fatless sponge certainly raises the bar as far as quality of a trifle is concerned, bought biscuits are perfectly acceptable. If I'm making a sponge or for a trifle, I actually like to make it as a Swiss roll, filling it with jam. Using freshly ground almonds in place of flour for the sponge is also a nice enhancement. In 1654, a man named Joseph Cooper published a book called The Art of Cookery Refined and Augmented. He had been a cook for Charles I until the fall of the monarchy in 1648. In his book, Cooper included a recipe titled To Make a Fool that looks like the first evolutionary beginnings of our trifle. Slice a manchette very thin and lay it in the bottom of a dish and wet them with sack, boil cream with eggs and three or four blades of mace. Season it with rose water and sugar, store it well together to prevent curdling, then pour it into the bread and let it cool. 
then serve it up to the table. By the way, a manchette was a loaf of fine bread and was probably day-old bread. We see here the imaginative leap that turned a fool into something more substantial, possibly inspired by leftovers. In 1673, recipe writer Hannah Woolley is adding fruit to the dessert. A Norfolk Fool Take a quart of thick sweet cream, set it a-boiling in a clear scoured skillet with some large mace and whole cinnamon. Having boiled a little while, take the yolks of five or six eggs beaten well and put into it. Being off the fire, take out the cinnamon and mace, the cream being pretty thick. Slice a fine manchette into thin slices, as many as will cover the bottom of a dish, and then pour it on the cream. Trim the dish with carved sippets, and stick it with sliced dates and scrap sugar all over it. It really wasn't though until the mid-1700s that trifles started to look like what we think of now as trifles. Some people see the addition of jelly as a modern variation, but Hannah Glasses published a trifle recipe in 1747 that actually used fruit jelly. And the poet Oliver Wendell Holmes in 1861 wrote about trifles with jelly in them. Nor is the addition of macaroons a modern invention. Punch magazine in London mentions them in print around 1860, and Frederick Bishop in his 1852 book, The Wife's Own Book of Cookery, gave a trifle recipe calling for macaroons. The trifle allows for infinite variations on its theme, but demands rigor in its assembly. A trifle is generally made in a glass bowl to show off the many textured layers that combine to create a dessert of beauty. In their book, Helen Saberi and Alan Davidson equate its assembly to architecture. Its construction begins with a layer of sponge cake that has been moistened and softened by wine. This is followed by fruit or jam, which in turn is followed by custard and finally whipped cream. This is the end of layering, but not the end of the trifle, as the top must be decorated. Among these decorations are candied fruit, angelica or confit. Once again, the old French word confit was the inspiration. Confit were made by sugar coating bits of rind or seeds or aromatic roots. Sugared caraway seed were among the most popular. I talk more about confits in my episode about sugar plums. In 1796, prior to the cookbook called American Cookery by Amelia Simmons, colonists in America were still relying on cookery books published and or written in England. This was the first cookbook authored by an American and published in the United States. Although Simmons had many English recipes in this collection, it is the first book to introduce native resources, such as cranberries and corn products, for example, in the cooking repertoire. In this cookbook, Amelia Simmons describes a trifle. Fill a dish with biscuit finely broken, rusk and spice cake wet with wine, then pour a good boiled custard, not too thick, over the rusk. Put a syllabub over that, garnish with jelly and flowers. In 1861, Oliver Wendell Holmes, American author, waxed positively poetic about the dessert, calling it that most wonderful object of domestic art called trifle with its charming confusion of cream and cake and almonds and jam and jelly and wine and cinnamon and froth. In modern vocabulary, the word trifle means something of little consequence or insubstantial. 
All serious research tells us that the word trifle comes from the Middle English truffle, which in turn derives from the French truffe, which is literally translated as something whimsical or of little importance. The adopted word may be a bit of a red herring, as the French had nothing to do with the creation of this dessert. We are left with our own imaginations wondering why this multi-layered substantial dessert has been dismissed as a trifle. Could it be that an early cook finding a way to use leftover bread or cake shrugged off his creation as a thing of no importance? Or could it be exactly the opposite, a bit of mock humility from a cook who is covering pride? Just as we might say today, oh, I just whipped something up. An early cook may have dismissed a proud creation as just a trifle. The trifle may be an international traveler. In Scotland, the trifle appeared under the name Wimwam. In Ireland, the name trifle was maintained. Both countries increased the alcohol, which may have given rise to yet another invention, the tipsy cake. Further afield, the Italian creation Zuppa Inglese, English soup, is a form of trifle, as is a tiramisu. Mousse à l'anglaise is a French variety. One popular trifle variant has the sponge soaked in jelly when the trifle is made, which sets when refrigerated. The cake and jelly bind together and produce a pleasant texture if made in the correct proportions. Originally, a jelly, often containing fresh or preserved fruit, would have been presented separately next to the trifle proper, which could be made with a stiff custard and cream and delivered on the presentation plate directly from a large mold and then elaborately decorated with sweetened and flavored piped cream and carefully arranged slices of glassy fruit and angelica in a neat and regimented fashion. A Creole trifle, also sometimes called a Russian cake or Russian slab, is a different but related dessert item consisting of pieces of variety of cakes mixed and packed firmly, moistened with alcohol, commonly a red wine or a rum, and a sweet syrup or fruit juice, and then chilled. The resulting cake contains a variety of color and flavor. A similar dessert in Germany and Austria goes by the name of Punchtot. And finally, early trifle recipes mostly suggest making it in a large china bowl, but pretty quickly the trifle bowl itself became an important part of this showy dessert. It needs to be glass so the layers can be seen and preferably a good lead crystal. Some are bowl shaped, but many are raised on a stand so the layers can be more easily admired. However, the bowl set on a stand cannot be as large as the one without and many trifles are made to feed 12 people. The bowl you use will determine the quantities required of each ingredient, so bear this in mind when looking at your recipes. There's also a question of whether the bowl should have straight or convex sides. Straight sides do make it easier to arrange the fruits around the edge. So, however you want to use up your holiday leftovers, don't be a fool and create this visually stunning and appetizing dessert for your friends and family. We can't do it without you, and your support means the world to us. We certainly hope you enjoy your free book as well as your free trial. And more so, we hope you enjoy listening to the show. Thanks again to Audible.com, and even more thanks to our wonderful and awesome listeners. Get your free audiobook download and 30-day free trial 
at www.audibletrial.com slash seasonseatings. Thank you for listening to this serving of Seasons Eatings. Seasons Eatings is available on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Deezer, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Please, if you can leave a review about the show so we can spread the Christmas cheer. And if you've let me know you've left a review, I'll send you a Seasons Eating sticker as a personal thank you. Also, I'd love to hear from you, so send me an email at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com to let me know how you like the show, suggestions for future episodes, or just to say hi. I know we all get busy, so even sharing the podcast with someone who loves Christmas would be a great help. And if you're feeling extra generous this season, you can buy me an eggnog. Head on over to seasonseatingspodcast.com and click on the little cup in the corner. Each small donation helps with the daily running of the podcast and is greatly appreciated. Seasons Eatings has great items for you or your loved ones for the holiday season. So head on over to seasonseatings.com, click on the merchandise tab, and find your next great gift. Thank you for listening and tune in again to Seasons Eatings. All music for Seasons Eatings is used under the Creative Commons license.